Welcome to uh, Beth Adonai, Congregation Beth Adonai. I'm Bobby Smith, and I'm going to be your uh, 10 a.m. teacher this morning. And let's uh, begin, as we always should, with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Father, we come before you today on your Shabbat in your house to study your word, my, my Father. Open our hearts and minds that we would be touched by your word, that we would be enriched by your word, and that we would be... Um, empowered by your word to show you and us and all that we do. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. All right, so um, believe it or not, it's been over a year since I have been doing this, 10 o'clock stuff. And the way I know that is that I did this Parsha last year. Yeah. So it's just, and you know, that's kind of the luck of the draw because it's, it's a rotating thing that we go through, you know. But um, um, when I went to, uh, to, to, to do that, you know, I looked at it and I said, you know, this is great. I don't have to do anything. I'll just do what I did last time. <laughs> right? So um, that's the way it was all week until this morning. <laughs> and the Lord said, you know, you, you don't want to do what you did last time. My word's full of richness. You don't have to go back and repeat what you've done before. Not, not to say what you did was wrong. Or, and it was really a good teaching, I thought. But um, so about, I uh, won't give you the exact time, but I got started on it. And the Lord's a, a wonderful, wonderful person or um, creation because he, he allowed me to put together a lesson. So I'm going to start with this because I've been studying this immunah a lot um, and this touched me pretty uh, deeply on uh, this one chapter, which I think is chapter two, no, chapter three, which is called The Power of Prayer. Um, and this particular part of the book is, is entitled Tehillim, Ours Eternally. Tehillim is the Psalms. It's the Hebrew word for Psalms. We couldn't possibly discuss the power of prayer without mentioning the greatest tool we possess to communicate with our Father. None other than Sefer Telalim, which is the book of Psalms. We can turn to our Telalim whether we feel like dancing and singing praises to Hashem or we feel like crying bitter tears and pouring out our heart in sorrow. David Hamelech, which is uh, King David, suffered persecution in his life, initially from his own brothers, then his father-in-law. Shaul Hamelech, which is... Um, the um, King Saul, even his loyal advisor betrayed him. He suffered terrible, um, this is a Hebrew word, za'ar gedu banim, when his son, Avashalom, revolted against him for many years. David was on the run. Even before he was anointed king at the age of 27, he spent all his days out in the fields as a shepherd, having been expelled from his own home due to false presumptions. Yet he composed various songs and praise in the midst of all his worries and was forever thanking his creator. I should have researched the book of Psalms a little more because I've done this before, but my memory's not great to remember everything. But the book of Psalms was written by David, but there's other authors as well. There's, there's not just, just David. There are such powerful words that we can even recite them without total comprehension. It's as if they are being uttered by David Hamelech himself with all his body and Kavanah, remember the word Kavanah, whenever Lance would come up and, and begin his um, 
his cantering. He would say we want to do our prayers with Kavanaugh with an intention, you know, which is a, which is a great intention. You just focus. It's like whenever you're, um, you're doing the Shema and you pull your, your, um, your tallit above your head, what you're doing there is you're putting yourself inside a room so that you're focused and there's nothing that distracts you, that you're, that you're, that you're just talking to the Lord one-on-one. -on -one. So that's what Kavanaugh means. These psalms are soaked with David's tears of pain and joy. They are filled with these prayers to Hashem, with, with faith, immunai, and pure trust. All of this kedusha is absorbed into our bones as we recite each word, and we naturally acquire David Hamalek's peace and mind and serenity. One can't imagine the power of each and every word to bring us closer to our Creator and to bring any salvation we might need. Indeed, these words were composed with our problems in mind. Anyone who trusts the book of Psalms, the Sefer Talim, in a time of need or a time of thankfulness is amazed at the way these ancient words seem perfectly suited to each occasion, even thousands of years after they were written. That is how it was meant to be. As the Midrash teaches, our Rabbi Yudan says in the name of Rabbi Yehuda that these psalms were not intended only for David himself. They suit any situation of any believer that will find himself in, that any believer will find himself in for all generations to come. This idea is confirmed by um, Radek when he says, David, Hamelech prayed for all the matters of Kalel in Israel, the nation of Israel, will require upon coming of Mashiach. He prayed for all the remedies for the sick and for the healthy to remain in good health and for abundant blessings for all Jews and for annulment of all evil decrees. Citing Telhalim is a zukus on par with Torah learning. One who cites Telhalim will not be accustomed of wasting time that could have been spent learning. He will receive war, reward as if he were learning the complicated prayers of the Ohalas Yakult Shemani. What gives Talim such power to bring all this? The thing is, is and it goes on and on and on, is to tell, tell stories. People in, in, the, uh, in the Jewish community when they would have rabbis or, or just individuals, when they would have troubles in their life or when they have, would have things going on in their life, they would start at the beginning of the book of Psalms. And they would read the entire book of Psalms in one sitting. It takes about six hours is what I understand. Um, so what I did is I started reading the Psalms each morning. And the very first Psalm is amazing. How blessed are those who reject the, who reject the advice of the wicked. Don't stand on the way of sinners or sit where scoffers sit. Their delight is in Adonai's Torah. On his Torah, they meditate day and night. That's how the Psalms began. They began with the fact that his Torah is meditated upon day and night. The Psalms are looked at by Christian believers, just as Jewish believers, as being God's word and being inspirational in ways to, to, um, to pray and sing and, and get closer to God when you have times of trouble or times of thanks. 
Because in, in the Psalms, like, like, like it said in, in, the, in the introduction to this, um, to this chapter, is full of all types of situations. So um, it's been a blessing, and uh, you should share blessings, right? So I wanted to share that blessing with you this morning. So let's get into the Torah portion. Um, one thing that was great about last year's Torah portion is uh, the way that it began, and I'm going to do that a little bit, because uh, the Torah portion in the synagogues back in the times of Yeshua, or um, back in the first century times, and probably up until the present day in some synagogues, is read in its entirety, including the Haftorah portion. There are seven readers that would read a Torah portion, and the seventh reader would have been called, would, would have not only read the seventh passage of Torah, but he would have also read what's known as the Meftir. And the Meftir is the very last portion of the Torah portion, the very, very last part of the Torah portion. And after that, that person would read the Haftorah portion. And then he, or she, I guess, would teach. They would teach about that week's Torah portion. When Yeshua was in the book of Matthew, and he was in his home synagogue reading the book of Isaiah, that would have been the half Torah portion of that particular, um, whatever that particular Torah reading was for that week, for whatever that particular Parsha was. And then that's why when you read the Bible and you see he, he sat down to teach, that's why he would have been doing that. That was a, that was a custom that was done within, within the synagogue. This week's Torah portion is broken down into these seven um, Categories. This shows you where, where they all start. This is where the readers would have started. So you would have seven readers that kind of shared the wealth a little bit. You know, they would all come up and, and read each part of the Torah portion. And this is the way that, that it was, was broken down. So um, um, one of the good um, lessons that Terry really picked up on last year was uh, this little saying, Torah brings success. Success brings complacency. Complacency leads to the neglect of Torah, and neglect of Torah leads to failure. It's a cycle that the Jewish people would go on throughout their history in the land, which is one of the reasons why they're in exile today. So, this Torah portion begins with Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12 through chapter 11, verse 25. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use Daniel Lancaster's Torah Club 1 to give an introduction to the Torah from the Torah standpoint. And then I'm going to use Daniel Lancaster's Torah 2, I think it's 2, whichever one is this, Shadows of Messiah, and, and, um, and, and finish with that. And the reason I start with the, with the, um, with the regular basis of the basic part of the Torah portion is because we should get a foundation before we go finding Messiah in the Torah. Because you have to have a good foundation in Torah before you can see the Messiah in the Torah. The disciples would have had a good foundation in the Torah, which is why Yeshua was able to, even though they weren't scholars, the disciples were not scholars, they were fishermen. Um, but they still had a grounding in Torah because they were, they, were, they were raised in Torah. So the things that Yeshua was telling them would have made sense to them, and whatever didn't make sense to them surely made sense to them when he was uh, risen from the dead the 40 days that he was with them here teaching them because they, they definitely had some serious power along with the Holy Spirit of what they were, uh, 
they were teaching. You can tell by their the positiveness. Today is the 23rd of Av. And Ikev means because. Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep, keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep you with his covenant and his loving kindness, his chesed, which he swore to your forefathers. Usually the word Ikev means heel, H-E-E-L, the heel of your foot. This portion of Deuteronomy speaks of the rewards that will come to Israel on the heels of keeping God's covenant and commandments. The future looks bright to them. Now remember, Deuteronomy is being given by Moses to the children of Israel that have been spent 40 years in the wilderness, that are the children of the children that originally left the, uh, uh, Egypt in the Exodus. So he's, he's speaking to these children. The whole book of Deuteronomy it's just Moses' speech to those children before they enter the land. And it doesn't take a whole lot of time in uh, actual, um, you know, the time, from the time Moses started to the time he finished. Moses depicted a bright future for the children of Israel. They had good things coming to them in the promised land, but only on the contingency that they would keep the commandments of God. Moses promised that the people of Israel would be blessed with miraculous fertility, prosperity, and wealth. They would be free of sickness and plague. All these blessings and this great bright future were within the grasp of the children of Israel if only they would keep God's commandments and honor his covenant. Deuteronomy 8.1 says, All the mitzvah that I am giving you today, you are to take care to obey so that you will live, increase your numbers, enter and take possession of the land. Adonai swore to your ancestors. Deuteronomy 8.5 says this, Think deeply about it. Adonai was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his child. He's speaking of the 40 years of preparation that he um, kept the children in the wilderness, raising them in Torah as their parents faded away. Before God can entrust us with great things, we must prove faithful with the little things. Yeshua says, he who is faithful, faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, in Luke 16.10. God testified or tested the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness before bringing them into the promised land to humble them and to see if they would remain faithful to his Torah. He was preparing them. God brought Israel through the hardships and trials of the wilderness in order to train them. Thus, you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son, he says. This can be compared to a wealthy man who bequeathed a large inheritance to his son. However, he knew that if he simply gave the money to his son, the young man would forfeit it. And not only would he forfeit the, the, the uh, um, fortune, but he would forfeit important life lessons. So the man put the money into a trust and did not tell his son about it. He let his son get a job, acquire a skill, struggle to raise a family, juggle bills, learn to budget, and to handle his resources with thrift. When his son asked for financial assistance, the father would only give him a small sum sufficient for the day. When the father was satisfied that the young man had learned to conduct his affairs responsibly, it was then 
that he gave him the inheritance. Our Father in heaven is the same way. He raises us. We grow. We grow, we grow in faith. And the more that we grow, the more that we get. The, the more that we learn, the closer that we become. Deuteronomy 8.8 speaks of the seven species. It is a land of wheat and barley, grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Moses describes the land of Israel as a land of abundant water, agricultural bounty, and natural resources. He specifically mentions these seven types of produce that characterize agriculture in Israel. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olive oil, and dates. So many of those we can get today. And by the way, we're, we're growing figs out there, but they don't seem to be lasting. They seem to be disappearing or something. But, <laughs> but we've got a lot of them. Um, we tried to have a, have a garden out there where we grew some of these things. In the days of the Bible, the seven species were the main food supply for the people of Israel. Today, Israel is a land of agricultural diversity, but the seven species are still the common crops of the land. Blessing God at meals. Berakat uh, Hamazon, I think is the way to pronounce this. Um, actually, you know, that's we, in Judaism, you bless the Lord after you have a meal, not before you have a meal. We do it a little differently here when we do our Kiddush and Hamosi, but um, it's, it's, that's the culture. So you will eat and be satisfied, and then you will bless Adonai your God for the good land that he has given you. In Judaism, the food is not blessed. God is blessed for providing the food. More, more accurately, God is thanked for providing the food. Thanking God before meals is a precious tradition of the master and one we would do well to imitate. The Torah commands us to also bless the Lord after we've eaten. The Torah says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he gave you. And he actually puts it afterwards. The Torah gave this commandment to the children of Israel so they would not forget God. He warned the Israelites not to tell themselves, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. It's all, it all comes from God. Deuteronomy 9.6 in this week's Torah portion says, Therefore understand that is, that is, is not for righteousness that Adonai your God is giving you this land. It is not your, for your righteousness that Adonai is giving you this land to possess. Moses warned the children of Israel not to presume that they had merited God's favor on the basis of their righteousness. Lest we delude ourselves into thinking that our prosperity comes from our own hands. Israel, we, we're, even if though it's coming from your efforts, your efforts come from God. Everything comes from God. In Deuteronomy 10.16, it, it talks about circumcising our hearts. Therefore, circumcising the, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and don't be stiff-necked any longer. A stiff neck is a biblical idiom that refers to pride and stubbornness. A person with a stiff neck is not flexible. The uncircumcised heart is stubborn and inflexible. It does not submit to God's will. The word of God cannot bear fruit or even take root in that heart. You know, 
One of the things I've had to train myself on throughout my years is um, not to be quick to anger. We're all so self-defensive of ourselves when things don't seem to be going our way, you know, or when somebody says something to us that we don't agree with. But the bottom line is, is you have to think things through. If you're slow to anger and you give people that you're interacting with the benefit of the doubt, you'll find that nine times out of ten, nothing was really directed at you. It was something completely that the other person was dealing with. And even if it was directed at you, it, the reasons that it was directed at you may not be something that, um, that should offend you. You should look for what, where that person's coming from and what that person's dealing with. Those in, in Yeshua should have a markedly different nature than those without Yeshua. Our will should be supplemented, supplement, supplement, oh boy, our will should align with God's. These big words. Those of us who have experienced the miraculous rebirth that is the work of God's spirit within us through the agency of his son are supposed to have circumcised hearts. The directives of the Shema. The Shema comes from three passages in the Bible. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9, Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, and Numbers chapter 15, 37 through 41, which is in the uh, Parsha uh, Shalak. So, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says this, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, hear Israel, our God, Adonai is one. And you are to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your resources. These are words which I am ordering you today are to be on your heart. And you are to teach them carefully to your children. You are to talk about them when you sit at your home, when you are traveling on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them on your hand as a sign. Now this is coming from the complete Jewish Bible, so it may be a little bit different than, what you're, than some of the other versions. Tie them on your hand as a sign. Put them at the front of a headband around your forehead and write them on the door frames of your house and upon your gates. So, if you listen carefully to my mitzvah, which I am giving you today, to love Adonai your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your being, then I will give your land its rain in the right seasons, including the early fall rains and the late spring rains. We're going to come back to that. Remember that so that you can gather in your wheat new wine and olive oil. And I will give your fields grass for your livestock, with the result that you will eat and be satisfied. But be careful not to let yourselves be seduced, so that you turn aside, serving other gods and worshiping them. If you do, the anger of Adonai will blaze up against you. He will shut up the sky, so that there will be no rain. The ground will not yield its produce, and you will quickly pass away from the good land that Adonai has given you. Therefore, you are to store up these words of mine in your heart and all your being and tie them on your hand as a sign. Put them at the front of your headband, around your forehead. Teach them carefully to your children, talking about them when you sit in your home, when you are traveling on the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. And write them on the door frames of your house and upon your gates, so that you and your children will live long on the, in the land that Adonai swore to your ancestors that he would give them for as long as there is a sky above the earth. In the um, Torah person Shalak, 
the part of the smile is actually the Mayfetir reading. So the uh, reader of that day would have more than likely taught about the Shema. Adonai said to Moshe, speak to the people of Israel, instructing them to make through all their generations zitzit on the corners of their garments and put the zitzit on each corner of a blue thread. It is to be a zitzit for you to look at and thereby remember all of Adonai's mitzvot and obey them. So when you see somebody wearing zitzit, what they're doing is, is they're basically professing that they follow the commandments of God. That's what the zitzit is, um, is, is, um, is representing. Each of these directives is an important foundational teaching in Judaism. They are daily reminders of our obligations to God's commandments and his precious word. God's writing the word on our heart in Deuteronomy 11:18. Moses tells the children of Israel to impress the word of the Torah on their hearts and on their souls. We should be continually committing God's word to the memory of our minds and allowing it to shape the way we think and absorb into our hearts and our souls. When the Torah is written on our hearts, it will show in our behavior. The way that we conduct ourselves will demonstrate God's commandments that they are impressed upon our hearts and souls. It's easy to talk about Torah and expound upon religion, but it's not easy to practice what we preach. And that doesn't mean just when you're here on Shabbat. That's every minute of every day. Tefillim. Observant Jews understood Deuteronomy 11.18 to mean that the word of God should be strapped to the arm and forehead in the form of tefillim. Y'all have seen that before, right? These things are small black leather boxes containing handwritten parchments of Torah passages. Exodus 13.1-10, through 10, Exodus 13.11-16, and Deuteronomy 6.4-9 are the passages that will be in there. And also Deuteronomy 11.13-21. The parchments are written, on, written by a specially trained scribe. The black boxes have leather straps, which the wearer, wearer wears one box to his upper arm and the other on his forehead. In this manner, the person is literally binding God's word to his body. This is one thing, the one thing, that I've never done, actually. Um, there's a lot of value in it. Um, I've just never made it there. And... Um, not that I'm ashamed of that, but it's something that, um, that there is value to, you know. Um, I know Rabbi's grandfather has one that we've, we've shown before, which is really a, a, a beautiful one, and, and uh, others that I know have, have partaken in that commandment. Deuteronomy 11:19. Teach them carefully to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you're traveling on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Deuteronomy tells us to rehearse God's word by discussing it with one another at all times of the day, in the morning, evening, and you know, in the afternoon as well, when at home and when away. The mezuzah. And write them on the door frames of your house and upon your gates. These are outward signs that you are a follower of Torah, that you believe in the commandments of God. Mezuzah is placed on the doorframe of the entry into your home and any of the entries into your home. Some people place them on all the doorframes of their home, but I just feel that the entry is sufficient. God provided Israel with several reminders of his word. The tassels on their garments or the zitzits were to be reminders of all the commandments. 
the Tefillin they bound on their foreheads and on their arms to remind them of their covenant obligations. In a similar way, God commanded Israel to write his commandments on the doorpost of their house. The Hebrew word for doorpost is mezuah. In traditional Judaism, a small scroll case is attached to the door frames of one's home. The scroll case contains a rolled up parchment of which Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the first passage of the Shema, is written. The scroll case with the parchment inside is referred to as the mezuzah. The mezuzah on the doorpost creates a physical reminder that one's home is a Torah home. When you go in, you see the mezuzah and remember that the, Torah, that the, that the home is conducted according to the commandments of God. When you go out, you see the mezuzah, you remember that while you are going out into the world, you have an obligation to conduct yourselves according to the commandments of God. The the mezuzah is traditionally placed on the right side of the doorpost about one-third of the way down. In some traditions, it's affixed diagonally with, a, with it pointing inward as is to say, come enter this living place that is dedicated to God, and we honor his Torah here. The daily recitation of the Shema contains the commandment to affix the mezuzah, the commandment to bind tefillin, and the commandment to wear tassels, or tzitzit. All these commandments are outward signs of commandments intended to remind a person of God's instructions of Torah and that you follow Torah. So, I'm now going to go into um, Shadows of Messiah. Because in each Torah portion each week, there are... I'm going to have to figure... There are... Um, Shadows. There are like um, um, places where the Messiah is in, because the Messiah is all through Torah. And one of the things that he did in the 40 days that he was here after his ascension was he showed the disciples, his, his apostles, himself within the Torah. We're told that actually in Scripture. The titles of Messiah that come out of this week's Torah portion are Fruit of the Womb. By the way, this is from Daniel Lancaster's um, Shadows of Messiah. Let me go ahead and put that up there so you got that. Fruit of the womb, fruit of the ground, t tender shoot, root out of dry ground, the man, early rain, and teacher of righteousness. So we go back through the Torah now, the Torah portion that we quickly went through with, with you know, learning the Torah, and we look for the shadows of Messiah within the Torah. Deuteronomy 7.12. Parsha Ekeb begins with a powerful because. That's what the word Ekeb means, because. The word of Ekeb means because. This Parsha says that because Israel obeys the Torah of God, God will love, bless, and multiply the nation. It goes on to illustrate the point by promising a blessing on the land and the people for their obedience, while at the same time warning them of straying as they have in the past. From a messianic perspective, Disciples of Yeshua recognize that the blessing and love of God we enjoy results directly from obedience to the Torah, namely, Messiah's obedience. His righteousness has merited God's favor for us. Messiah is our Ekev. Messiah is our because. Because of Messiah, because of his righteousness, because of his sacrificial death, and because of his gospel call to repentance, 
we are able to enjoy the love, blessing, and favor of God. Because of this, we should all the more be eager and earnest to emulate his obedience to the commandments of the Torah. The footsteps of Messiah. The word Ikev sounds like the Hebrew word Akev. In fact, in Hebrew it's spelled exactly the same. You would, if you didn't have the vowel pronunciations and it was in a sentence in Hebrew, you would have to understand the sentence to be able to tell the difference in the two. Because Akev means heal. Now I'm talking about the heel of your foot, not the, the word healing. On a mystical level, the name of the Prashat could be understood as a hint back to the warning in Genesis 3.15 where the Lord said that the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is the Messiah. The Bible mentions the heels of Messiah in the Psalms. Psalms 89.52 Your enemies have reproached, O Lord, they have approached the heels of your Messiah. The rabbis understood these references to the heels of the Messiah to indicate the final generation that will see the coming of the Messiah. Rabbinic sources refer to the generation of the final redemption as the heels of Messiah or translate another way, or translate another way, the footsteps of Messiah. Blessed is the fruit of the womb. He will also bless the fruit of the womb. It says so in Deuteronomy 7.13. The poetic term through the womb is a biblical idiom for children and offspring. Both the children of men and women and the offspring of the livestock and cattle. In the messianic era, every conception will result in the birth of a healthy child. Miraculous fertility will fill the land with livestock and children. The blessing also alludes to the Messiah, and the Messiah can rightfully be called the fruit of the womb. He is the most blessed of all the children of Israel. By sending his son to be conceived within the womb of Mary or Miriam, a virgin, God promised to bless the fruit of the womb. Yeshua is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. In that same passage, 713, he referenced the blessing of the fruit of the ground. God promises to bless the fruit of the womb and the fruit of the ground, an idiom for agricultural produce. The, under the blessing of the agricultural prosperity in the messianic era, the land will produce more than can be consumed. The miracle of Messiah's conception within the womb of a virgin is hinted at in Isaiah's prophecy, which compares Messiah to the fruit of the ground. In Isaiah 53.2 it says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. The womb of a virgin may be compared to parched ground on which nothing will ordinarily grow until it is watered with life-giving rain. Messiah's conception in the womb of a virgin can be compared to a tender shoot which miraculously grows out of parched ground. The germination and sprouting of grain is used as a simile for the resurrection of the dead. Yeshua compared his death and resurrection to planting wheat in the ground. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's in John 12:24. Yeshua spoke of himself as the bread of life. He came forth from the earth in that he rose from the dead and left his tomb. 
just as he defied the natural order of life being conceived within the tomb of a virgin, he also defied the natural order of death by rising from the grave. Therefore, Messiah may be referred to as the fruit of the ground. There is um, this reference in the same passage to grain, oil, and grain, new wine, and oil. In a literal sense, grain and new wine and oil refer to the produce of the fields, vineyards, and olive groves. The prophets characterized the Messianic era as a time of abundant grain, new wine, and oil. The redeemed of Israel will rejoice over the grain, wine, and oil. He took the wine in hand, blessed God, and shared it among his disciples. This is my body, he said over the bread. This is my blood, he said over the wine. He blessed new grain and wine. Then he broke the loaves to distribute them. The supply of bread proved to be inexhaustible in his hands. The bread multiplied, multiplied to provide an abundance of grain. Similarly, in the wedding in Cana, the water turned to wine, indicating an exhaustible, inexhaustible supply. Moreover, the Lord promised to bless the oil. The prophets used the oil, they used the oil of Israel's olives to anoint the kings of Israel. The ultimate king of Israel himself is called the anointed one, which is the Mashiach. When Yeshua will ultimately be anointed as king over Jerusalem and all the kings, and when the crown of his father David sits upon his head, it will be said, God has blessed the new grain, the new wine, and the new oil. The days of Messiah. In anticipation of the agricultural abundance of the Messianic era, the sages often quoted the words of the Messianic prophecy of Psalm 72:16. May there be abundance of grain in the earth. Midrash Takuma, on Parsha, when it's speaking or commenting on Parsha Ekev, ask, when will this be fulfilled? When will it be fulfilled that there will be abundance of grain in the earth? The answer is, it will be in the days of the Messiah. The comment begins as a discussion about the coming of Messiah and the duration of the Messianic era. The Midrash offers opinions various rabbis held on the subject. How long will the days of Messiah last? Now this is in the, um, this is in the uh, Talmud. Actually, the, the um, Talmud had a big discussion on so many different things, but, but, but on, on, the, uh, on how long the Messianic era would, would, would last. And, and various rabbis came up with different um, interpretations. Some of them said 40 years. Some said 100 years. Some said 400 years. And some said 600 years. One rabbi even said 7,000 years. But Rabbi Eliezer's opinion sort of aligns best with apostolic teaching on the subject. By the way, if you want to learn a lot about um, Revelation, that's been one of the things that's always been difficult. We don't, we've never had a class here about Revelation. We've never really had a big teaching, to my knowledge, about Revelation. But Daniel Lancaster of FSOZ has a really good teaching on Revelation. And you can actually go to his website, 
and you can uh, and, 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 and hear the, the teaching on Revelation. It gives you a better understanding of uh, some of the thoughts on the Messianic era. It's very, very good. But Rabbi Eleazar's opinion, it accords with apostolic teaching on this subject. According to Rabbi Eleazar, the Messianic era will last a thousand years. He derives this opinion from the verse in Isaiah 63 that says, the day of vengeance was in my heart. And the verse in Psalm 94 which says, for a thousand years in your sight. Oh, let me do that again, I'm sorry. For a thousand years in your sight are as a day. The thousand years of the Messiah correspond to the thousand years of Messiah's reign over the earth. There's just this thinking that uh, um, we don't automatically get caught up, you know, all this, that Messiah will reign on earth for a thousand years. That's why there will be abundance of food and there will be perfect births and there will be all these things that, uh, that, are, that are predicted because it will still be going on. And the other thing is, is there will be a temple. I was, um, um, last week I met somebody new here and they were telling me one of the reasons that they came was they were watching this series on Netflix. And the series on Netflix, oh boy, um, it's basically the story of Acts. Uh, A.D. is the name of it, and then uh, I should have, should have written this down because how, how bad my memory is. But um, basically, it, it's, it's like 12, um, not sessions, but shows, 12 shows, about 45 minutes, minutes each. So I had to go see what this guy, what, what brought him here, you know. And it, it, it basically um, tells the story of um, the book of Acts, and it shows the temple, it shows all these different things that are pretty accurate as far as Judaism is concerned, but it's, take, it's, 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 it's got the viewpoint of Christianity, not the viewpoint of Judaism or Messianic Judaism. And it sort of takes you down a road that um, um, it makes you, what do I it's, it's just not accurate. The way, it's, 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 it's biblical from the standpoint that they got a lot of the, the, the details right, but the viewpoint of the apostles is all being done in the viewpoint of the Christian viewpoint and not the viewpoint of the messianic viewpoint, and it can take you down the wrong path. So in the messianic era, we will be given the Torah on our hearts, and the truth of Torah will be revealed for sure. So, um, healing and the kingdom, Deuteronomy 7.15. Adonai will remove illness from you. He will not afflict you with any of Egypt's dreadful diseases which you have known. Instead, he will lay them on those who hate you. Moses told the people that they, if they faithfully obeyed the Torah and kept the covenant, the Lord would bless them by removing sickness and disease from their midst. In the Messianic era, the Lord will enact a new covenant, forgive Israel for their sins, and grant his people a new heart on which he writes his Torah. He says, I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. That's what he says in Jeremiah 31, 34. The Lord will remove all sickness and harmful diseases from his people. The, 
This explains why our master considered the healing of the sick to be one of the signs of the nearness of the kingdom. He went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. In Matthew 4.23, all of the miraculous healing stories of the gospels are tokens of the kingdom of heaven which point back to Deuteronomy 7.15. The purpose of the exile. Deuteronomy 8.2 says this. You are to remember everything of the way in which Adonai led you these 40 years in the desert, humbling and testing you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you will obey his mitzvah. The Lord used these 40 years to refine the nation and to test the nation. He refined the nation by humbling them, afflicting them with hunger, feeding them with manna, and teaching them to rely solely upon him. During those 40 years, the Lord chastened Israel and refined the character of the nation just as a man disciplines his son. The 40 years in the wilderness correspond to the current exile. Why does the exile drag on so long? And why has the second coming Messiah been delayed for all these years? The Lord uses those long years to bring his people to repentance and to test their hearts. We are to grow incrementally. You grow incrementally. Bread alone in Deuteronomy 8.3. He humbled you, allowing you to become hungry. Then he fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known, to make you understand that a person does not live on food alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of Adonai, from the mouth of Hashem, from the mouth of God. A person might suppose that he subsists upon the material things necessary for sustaining human life, such as food and water. A simple hand-to-mouth philosophy like that reduces human existence to the merely striving for the food and shelter and clothing that we need. The miracle of manna reminds us that the material world is not a source of life. Instead, God is our source of life. The material world came into existence from the utterance of his mouth. Therefore, we should seek to serve the creator and not creation, which is the whole lesson of idolatry. Yeshua referred to himself as the bread of heaven in John 6. He is the word of God made flesh. From a messianic perspective, we may understand Deuteronomy 8.3 in reference to Yeshua, the bread from heaven, the divine word that proceeds from the Father. We do not live by the substance of this word alone, but by Messiah, the bread of life. Yeshua was there from the beginning. Another title for him is called the man. The adversary, Hasatan, tempted Yeshua to take a shortcut to revealing his messianic identity and power and to use that power for selfish purposes. How many times have you taken a shortcut? How many times do we take the easy way to do things, right? But Yeshua instead, he quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 saying, It is written, Man shall not live upon bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. An allusion to the Messiah can be detected in a literal translation of the Hebrew of Deuteronomy 8.3. The Hebrew does not say a man shall not live on bread alone. Instead, it says the man does not live by bread alone but the man by, lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord.
Why does the Hebrew use a definite article and speak as the man when it surely has every human being in mind? The man can be understood as a title for Messiah. For example, the Bible uses the term son of man as an idiom for human being, but the term the son of man indicates the Messiah. Using the same principle, we might infer that a man refers to any human being whereas the man refers specifically to the Messiah. Yeshua is the divine word of God, sustained by the Father. He does not need the world's bread. In Deuteronomy 10:12, it's walking in the ways of God. So now Israel, all that Adonai your God asks from you is to fear Adonai your God, follow all his ways, love him, and serve Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your being to obey for your own good the mitzvot and regulations of Adonai which I am giving you today. To walk in God's ways means to keep his Torah. As Yeshua's disciples imitate his ways, they are actually learning the ways of God. This is the essence of discipleship and unity with God through Yeshua. In Deuteronomy 11.14, we have the rain from heaven. I will give your land its rain at the right seasons, including the early fall rains and the late spring rains, so that you can gather in your wheat, your new wine, and your new oil. Still got that up there. Deuteronomy 11.14 speaks of two distinct rainy seasons, the Hebrew word yoreh and the malchosh. The New American Standard translate these rains as the early rain and the latter rain, respectively. They are the autumn rains generally, which begin in the eighth month of the biblical calendar and continue on and off into the spring. The spring rain comes around near the end of the rainy season around Passover. The Talmud observes it this way. The early rain falls in the month of Keshavan, Keshvan, and the latter rain falls in the month of Nisan. The coming of Messiah is comparable to the rainy seasons of the land of Israel. In his first coming, Messiah did his primary work of redemption at Passover time, thereby fulfilling the symbolism of the spring festivals through his death and resurrection. His first coming can be compared to the latter spring rains which fall around Passover. The symbolism of the fall festivals points toward his second coming, which we are about to enter, by the way. For that reason, his return may be compared to the early autumn rains, which begin in the fall. Just as God is faithful to send the rain from heaven in its proper seasons, so too he sends Messiah at his appointed time. The Hebrew word yoreh, this is how it looks in Hebrew, is autumn rains. It had the verbal root yarah. Yarah means to teach and instruct. The same Hebrew word from which the word Torah is derived. I just lost my thing here, just a second here. You can see that, uh, can you see the word Torah? Yeah. The double meaning of the word Yerah gives rise to an ambiguous reading of Joel, Joel the book of Joel 2.23, where the phrase, he has given you early right, rain for righteousness. It can be read as, he has given you the teacher of righteousness. 
Rashi and Arbarbanel, which are both rabbis, believe that this may be a reference to Mashiach, who will teach the entire world the proper way of serving Yeshim, Hashem, God. Yeshua is the teacher of righteousness, who comes to Israel as the former reign and the latter reign. It is an apt title for Messiah. He is the teacher who has descended like rain from heaven to teach us the ways of righteousness. In the book of James, James being uh, his brother, Yaakov, in chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, it says, So brothers, be patient until the Lord returns. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? He is patient until it receives the fall and the spring rains. You too be patient. Keep up your courage, for the Lord's return is near. So many hints in scripture of what's going on. And when we experience these festivals each year, we get every year the pattern of God's salvation. You should pay attention to the, to the lessons that are, that are coming. And just remember, everything that Yeshua did revolved around those appointed times. So um, that's going to be the end of my lesson today. Um, next week we're going to study Parsha Re'eh, and that one I haven't done before, so uh, we'll go deep into, um, into the Torah portion. And um, as I go through them and, and I come, up, uh, come upon a, one that I do a second time, I'll bring in the uh, Shadows of Messiah, because I think it's, good, it's really good stuff to see Yeshua in, 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 the, uh, in the Torah.